If you're enjoying the podcast, consider leaving us a review and supporting the show on Patreon. You can find more information on our website at unlivablecultures.wordpress.com, and we're also on Twitter at unlivablepod. Feel free to also just hang out with us for these podcast episodes and then go on with your day. It should have this feeling of futility at this point. You should be feeling like, what is the point of all this? Academic publishing ought to be about somehow moving humanity forward in some way. And we aren't able to do that. And it seems like the whole system, the way it's set up, is designed to stop you from doing that. like welcome to unlivable cultures the podcast where we're probably too tired to even be doing this (laughs) (laughs) 106 a.m wow yeah i have one good one welcome to unlivable cultures this is the podcast where we download cars as well as textbooks (laughs) and this is a reference if if y'all don't get it to the like old commercials uh, at oh. least in the U.S., we'd get these commercials before movies and everything. Yeah. It's like, like you downloaded a movie, but would you download a car? Like talking, like anti-piracy campaign, basically saying, like you know, don't yeah. download movies illegally because you're taking away from all this. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of Carvana. <laughs> yeah, Carvana. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess you, you just repressed it from. I guess it was like, yeah, mostly. It was like early 2000s or mid 2000s or something. Um, but yeah, I'm Cody Skahan using he, him pronouns. Julia Coverdale, I use they, them pronouns. And my name is Clayton Gerard. I use he, him pronouns. And for today's episode, to talk about academic publishing, shadow libraries, piracy, and anything else that strikes our fancy, we are joined by Professor and Dr. Lori Johnson. Lori Johnson is a professor of political science and director of the primary text certificate at Kansas State University and associate faculty editor of Live Ideas Undergraduate Journal. She is the author of seven books and numerous book chapters and articles. Most of her work has been has involved developing a thorough understanding and critique of classical liberal theory and includes works on Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau and Tocqueville. Her most recent book, Ideological Possession and the Rise of the New Right, The Political Thought of Carl Jung, was published in 2019 by Rowledge. She is currently working on a new book, Can Anything Fix This? Towards Repairing Our Urban Rural-Slash-Urban Divide, which will be published by Whip and Stock. Her teaching includes courses on the history of political philosophy, ideologies, and environmental political thought. If you can't tell, I got that bio from the Kansas State <laughs> University website. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, Lori Johnson is also the host of the YouTube channel, Political Philosophy, Dr. Lori Johnson. She also is the co-founder with Spencer Hess of the Amaran Academy, which puts on like different sessions and lecture series such as Pints with Plato. And she is also the host, uh, co-host with Spencer Hess as well of the Dust Bowl Diatribes podcast. So is there anything else you would like to add, Lori? Thanks. No, you covered it pretty well, actually. Appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Appreciate any plugs I can get. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you want to share your Venmo or Cash App or anything? <laughs> uh, <laughs> they can go to like the Morin Academy website. We've got a QR code there. Just scan it to give us money. We would really appreciate that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, give Lori money. <laughs> uh, yeah, Lori's um, was my. I had a. I took a class with her during my undergrad career at K State, and um, I've been involved with her in a book club for at least a year and a half now. She's just, yeah, a great person and super knowledgeable at academic publishing, knows way more than us because um, she's published seven books and between the rest of us, we have published zero. We're getting there. We're kind of close though. We're, we can. <laughs> we're trying. <laughs> pull it out sometime. Yeah. The next yeah. year or two, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You speak for yourself. <laughs> I think I'm further <laughs> away than that. <laughs> But yeah, Lori, just to start out with, do you want to talk about a little bit about your experience with academic publishing? Maybe talk about your most recent book that you're in the process of working on right now and publishing? Well, yeah, I yeah, I chose uh, the Whippenstock publisher because I my a lot of my career has been kind of like a, an attempt to try to find a publisher that could kind of straddle the um academic world, but also like popular publishing. And that is really difficult for an academic to do. Um, and Whippenstock publishes in the area that I'm currently interested in, which among other things is political theology. And it does market its books to a general audience at a lower price. Uh, a lot of the previous books that I've published, I chose the publisher with the idea that they would be able to, um, you know, provide a, a relatively decent price for a paperback book only to get surprised by just how much they ended up charging people. And it it limits the number of people who actually can read your book in a pretty serious way. It's like the number one reason why people don't pick it up, even if they're kind of interested. So um, I am hopeful that uh, Whippenstock will be a good publisher moving forward for me because, I, I mean, I took the time to talk to them about it as well as check out their general pricing. Um, and I wish I'd have done more of that sooner, but we'll get into this later, I'm sure. But like there's real disincentives for doing what I did by selecting that publisher um, there. To think in terms of like price and accessibility to the general public is not what we're encouraged to do. If you wouldn't mind, could I ask a little bit more information on what you just said and like what are you incentivized to prioritize other than, you know, if it's not getting your work to a large audience, what is right. the priority for these presses? So in academic departments, uh, the top priority as far as, you know, how we're incentivized um, in our annual valuations and in our promotions has to do with um, metrics like uh, number of citations uh, and, and various things like that, you know, how your um, work is used by other academics. Um, and the presses are ranked I mean, we literally have rankings of presses according to those kinds of metrics. And so the top publishers for books are going to be um, university presses. Um, and university presses, some of them are very, very good, but they tend to want to put out your book in hardcover first. And, and your book may cost 
$175 to $150 in that format. And, and so that will go to libraries. And that's an old model because, as you guys know, libraries aren't buying hard books anymore, not nearly as much as they used to. And so I don't know when that's going to end, but, but a lot of academic presses, university presses, are still behaving as though that's a thing. That, and so a year or two goes by, and then if you sell enough of them to university libraries, then maybe they might put out a paperback, if you're lucky, that costs 48 bucks or so. Okay, it's still not within the range of, of ordinary people. Also, for that kind of publishing, you are really aiming at just your fellow academics because they're the ones that are going to read it and review it. Um, and that means that you're going to have to prove your academic chops with lots of citations and, you know, maybe an excessive amount of scholarly um, detail that makes your writing less accessible to even, you know, like well-read general public. Um, so that they're like, but they're considered number one from the point of view of me getting promotions and so on. And then number two is these um, commercial academic presses. And I've published with a few of those, but they're still, they're like considered just maybe one little step down but they still have the same sort of priorities. And they really, like one publisher, I won't name the specific publisher, but I had this conversation with them over a book that I wrote recently that was on a, a topic, um, ideological possession, that was in the popular culture of the moment. It was right after, you know, January January 6th that happened and all that stuff. And it was, it was touching on the, what causes things like that. And I said, you know, I have people, even people who like listen to my YouTube channel that would really like to like read this book. Is there any way that it can be, you know, even like made less expensive by making it download or something like that? It, that question got no traction whatsoever. They didn't even know what I was talking about. I don't even know if they knew what was going on in the larger world that would have like intersected with my book. It, it, there was just no like real comprehension of the need to like a popular audience to get a popular audience. So, but none of that matters from the point of view of m the professional side for me, I can get like promotions and credits um, on the basis of that type of publishing. If I were to publish in a popular press where I didn't have to do a lot of those things and where the metrics didn't matter, but I had a broader readership, it might not be as respected. In fact, it wouldn't be as respected. It would be ranked lower in my evaluations by my department. And that's across the board. I'm not just talking about my department, but anybody's department in a university is not going to see it. It's not going to see that as as valuable. Now, things are changing a little bit, but not that much. So this is, yeah. And that, that makes these books so expensive. Okay. And, and I think that gets into the zone of the topic of this uh, podcast. Yeah. This is starting to feel a little juicy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is perfect. Now at this stage, you've been an academic um, for quite some time now and you know, this is, is this your seventh book or your eighth book that's coming out? It's my eighth book. Eighth book. So mm -hmm. 
at this stage in your career, you feel like you can, you have the luxury or you're able to have a little bit, maybe more control over what publisher you use and everything like that. Like, would that be accurate? That's, that's right. Mm -hmm. I, I just remember talking to you in the past about like, not only as an early career academic, you were, you, you know, you talk about the promotion and how hard it is to get tenure and things like that. And like, not only were you, you know, you may have to publish with the publishers you don't want to publish with or who may not reach a larger popular audience. But you also talked a little bit about like what kind of topics you were encouraged or kind of required to write about, which mm -hmm. I think kind of fits into this broader sort of like academic publishing thing, because it's not only is like you're, you're pushed to publish with certain publishers or things like that, but you're also supposed to write about certain topics and in certain ways. So yeah. do you want to talk a little bit more about that maybe? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, in getting tenure, I focused on international relations theory. Uh, I have a master's degree in international relations and then my PhD was in political philosophy. Um, but international relations theory was an area that I could, um, I, I could juggle international relations theory as a theorist pretty well. And it was a, it was a good opportunity for me to publish journal articles. And I got some well-placed journal articles in, in an attempt to get tenure, but I kind of kept writing the same article over and over again in a way. I mean, I couldn't get outside of the zone of uh, my dissertation too easily. So my dissertation was about um, Thucydides and Hobbes and international relations realist theory. Um, and so I published multiple articles on realism and IR theory using those two theorists, Thucydides and Hobbes. I published in IO, which is one of the, if not the top international relations journals um, and security studies um, and other journals that were respected. And I needed to do that to get tenure because like all, you know, university um, departments, my department wants to see that kind of like highly ranked journal articles um, for you to get tenure. So I couldn't like, I didn't want to take any risks. I mean, I had a family. I was the primary breadwinner in the family. Uh, uh, my now ex-husband had like health issues. So like I felt responsible to get tenure. And so I just did, you know, the practical thing but that didn't, that was six years of, I wasn't able to develop my scholarship too much because I was, I found an area where I could be successful in. And I think that, I mean, after you get tenure, it's supposed to matter, you know, like from the point of view of ah, now you be, you feel freer, you know, to kind of publish uh, more uh, in an area about that, which you feel strongly about. But you still have to think about the annual standards. You have to think about also what academia wants wants you to write about, <laughs> which is, I mean, in a lot of cases, uh, we write fairly narrowly, okay? Um, you're trying to find, you're trying to write about something that hasn't quite ever been done before, you know, some new point. And a lot of times in order to achieve that, you kind of go narrow, um, whether it's whether it's theory or whether it's like um, you know a lot of my colleagues do some sort of analytic uh, analytical um, you know statistical analysis. Um, 
And so still, you know, if we want to be a successful academic, the incentives are still there to kind of be narrow, to be specialized, um, to not get outside your lane. And, and you don't have much incentive to interact with people outside of your discipline. So in the past 10 years, you know, since I've been doing the book group and other things with people outside my discipline, I've come to this realization that, yeah, there's a whole lot out there in other disciplines that bears on what I'm interested in that I would have never known about. And my discipline wouldn't have cared about <laughs> is the thing, you know, like that there's no incentive for me to have like dialogues with anthropologists or economists or people from other fields. So we then are like speaking past each other. Now, from the point of view of like building knowledge and solving problems, that doesn't sound like a very good way to proceed, does it? If that's what we were about because we're speaking past each other. We don't even know what each other is saying and the incentive is to go narrow. So that's what I've come to. I mean, I knew that after tenure, I mean, I've been aware of this dynamic my whole life, but yet there's a part of me that is a people pleaser, like a lot of us. I'm good at that. I'm good at what I do. I can publish things, you know, and and for quite a while after tenure, I was still incentivized probably too much by those things. Um, but of late, I finally decided uh, I'm going to do what I want when it comes to how I, what I write about. So, but then you're right, Cody, I'm, you know, this is my 30th year in the profession. Yeah. So even, even the, um, the people that dumb their time and have been in the, the slogs still have to kind of go to the whims. And for me, um, one of the themes that we kind of outlined while planning this episode was the connection of like book publishing and the academic sphere to capitalism. And, and that kind of feels like a, a little bit of what you're touching on now, because like a lot of the book publishers, um, the big ones or, or the um, conglomerates, the big book publishers, as well as like journal publishers who have like um, over time, like collected a monopoly of different journals um, and different like disciplines and all these things. And it's primarily driven for profit motives. Like there's some evidence, there was a recent letter from the European University Association and the subject was titled, European University's Concern About the Lack of Competition in the Scholarly Publishing Business Sector. And they talked about how um, the big publishers, the five big publishers, uh, which is Elsevier, like Wiley, Blackwell, Springer Nature, Taylor and Francis, and the American Chemical Society, their total annual costs were about 420 million euros. And then the total yearly amount spent by universities across Europe on all their electronic resources uh, was estimated to be about 681 million euros. And so this only represents like part of their profits. And so it's like in this letter, they estimate that the these journal conglomerates like Elsevier and, and Wiley Blackwell and everything are making like tens of millions to perhaps hundreds of millions in profits every year um, off of the back of the authors who receive, you know, a, a very small portion of this amount. Yeah, that's in nothing. We don't receive any. I mean, the I can, I probably have received no more than $5,000 in, um, in, uh, what do we even call them? Whatever it is, I forget the term, like the money that you get for for publishing. 
pity payment. (laughs) In the entire, you know, in all of those books, like, because the contract always says, you know, until you get to like a certain number, I don't know, like, let's make it up 500 books, then all of the proceeds go to the publisher, you know, various iterations of this, obviously, but, you know, only if, only if you get past this and then you're only getting a very small amount. So royalties, nobody does this for the royalties, right? They keep, they keep all of that and then they don't promote your book. I mean, like you would think for some of that money that they could do something to promote your book, but they put it in a catalog basically. They go to conferences and kind of like lay them out on a table or some such stuff. But as far as like doing something um, such as putting information out on media that people can access, access about your book, most of academic publishers don't do that. So it's frustrating. Which is, it's pretty insidious when you're thinking about like the importance of citing that work too. If you've got a publisher that's not even going to advertise or promote your work, and then a lot of your credibility depends on citations and how prestigious like your contribution is to the rest of the scholarly conversation on that topic. I mean, that's kind of a little troubling. Yeah. I mean, not that it's surprising, but. Well, totally. And then that puts that back on the, uh, we have to do everything. So now we're our own like promoters and, and like advertisers. So, you know, this is why academics have taken to Twitter and, and various, and they build a really cool like website and so on. And they try to give interviews about their, but they have to find those interviews themselves. I mean, basically we, we promote ourselves to the extent that we can, um, because at least partly because the publishers and the university actually doesn't do that for us. You know, you would think that a university with its giant apparatus, you know, could possibly like figure out what academics are publishing and put it out there for the media. And they do sometimes, but not consistently. Um, I would hazard a guess that my university doesn't know what I'm publishing outside of a very narrow band of, of folks. So, you know, I mean, it, 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 it has, it, it should have this feeling of futility at this point. You should be feeling like, what is the point of all this? Academic publishing ought to be about helping the public, you know, somehow moving humanity forward in some way. And it, we aren't, able to do that. And it seems like the whole system, the way it's set up, is designed to stop you from doing that, you know? And if you want to get out of that, you have to go to great lengths. And I kind of have done that, you know, through through my YouTube channel and public engagement. Um, but should you expect people to do that, to become kind of like their own industry in a way? I, I don't think that's it's, it's not beneficial to society to set things up this way. There's another factor when it comes to capitalism that I'll just throw out there. We can talk about it if people want, but um, it's that um, it's occurred to me that sort of like suppressing and putting a bunch of intelligent people who can put arguments together with this kind of system um, is, is, functions very well for keeping things the way they are. 
So if you, you take a whole lot of people off the table who might be able to um, move society forward or, you know, solve problems, um, and those people are, you know, sidelined for most of their career um, in a hamster wheel, you know, doing this kind of, um, you know, trying to fulfill these these standards and so on and not being able to engage in the public debate. Um, that's that goes quite along quite well with with capitalism, which, you know, I mean, it has given us some good things. But at this point, um, I mean, part of what the Morin Academy is about is where we keep constantly in mind the fact that what that that we're looking at, you know, climate change that's going to greatly disrupt our the lives, our lives and the lives of our kids moving forward. And, and uh, at this point, um, it's not, you know, obviously it's something that needs to be considered. Uh, and we can't do that. We can't we can't be a part of that conversation very easily um, under these circumstances. So anyway, like that is definitely in the mix for me. <laughs> and I think this is a great opportunity to kind of like zoom out a little bit and talk about capitalism and the system of academic publishing as a whole. I think that would be super enlightening, especially given some of the more textured experiences that you've talked about and then kind of having this conversation of how the academic publishing industrial complex, if that's even a thing, came about and like how it is so profitable, like you mentioned. I can speak a little bit to the Guardian piece. I thought it was super interesting, especially, I mean, the eye-catching piece, which you spoke to a little bit, Cody, in the letter you referenced, but the title is, Is the Staggeringly Profitable Business of Scientific Publishing Bad for Science by Stephen Baranyi? And the subtitle is, It is an industry like no other, with profit margins to rival Google, and it was created by one of Britain's most notorious tycoons, Robert Maxwell. And this article kind of went through like how scientific publishing formed as we knew it. So kind of what Lori spoke to for scientific or academic publishing, usually the scholars create their own material, like their own essays or books or whatever else. Um, this is funded usually through universities or various federal grants or different grants that people can get. Um, then scholars submit these to publishers who send them to peer reviewers who are other scholars who are basically volunteering their time and knowledge and expertise to edit the material and validate the credibility of it all for free. And then after it is reviewed, publishers then go back and sell it to typically government-funded institutions like universities, university libraries, those things who <laughs> use these resources for the scholars that created them in the first place. Maybe not the exact one, but, you know, Lori, as a political scientist, you write an article, goes through that entire system, and then it's produced at the end, put into the university library specifically for other political scientists, especially with the lack of promotion, you basically have to trust that people that are researching these topics are going to stumble upon it. It's not going to be for regular audiences. So at that point, you've got like nobody hardly being paid for the labor that they're doing. 
And yet these publishing companies are getting the money from university libraries for these materials. And the article specifically followed a man named Robert Maxwell, who kind of envisioned this process. You can look at the Guardian article for more context and details. I won't go into too much detail. But one of the most interesting things for me was that he, that Maxwell recognized the more journals you have, the more university libraries and other places are going to pay for subscription to those journals and to get the issues. And not only that, but the more issues of the journal you have, the more university libraries and people have to pay for it. So it kind of followed this proliferation of disciplines and subdisciplines and various journals of subdisciplines. So you don't just have biology as a journal. You have all these smaller subdisciplines of biology and then these specific topic areas of the subdiscipline of biology and then the, you know, specific perspectives based on those topic areas of the subdiscipline of biology. And then for each journal of that and for each issue of those journals, university libraries have to pay to get access to that. And scholars basically have to have access to that material in order to stay up to date on the scholarly conversations that are happening and to have relevance um, in those conversations to sustain their career. Yeah, I also wanted to say I I work at the university library at K-State um, and it's just interesting to like talk about this but then also have this experience like you know working in a part of the system where like universities are not not only are they not buying books anymore but they are not subscribing to academic journals anymore um like i know for me to keep up to date with archaeological stuff especially in the southwest i have to interlibrary loan every single new article like i i can't just access that um anymore and in addition to that um students don't they don't understand the library like um organization system like the university the library of congress system that we use to organize our books and so it's it's not like students who have like a casual interest in um, political science that would be interested in reading more of these books can just like go into the stacks and go and like peruse because most students wouldn't even know where to start or begin. And in addition to that, half the time they're, at least for archaeology, they're like split up kind of everywhere. Like there is an archaeology section and then there's like the like American archaeology section. And so it it's not conducive to making all of these things accessible for students and for researchers. Yeah, and that's a huge deal. And one thing that I find to be really interesting that a quote that I pulled from the article, um, which Nor Nori <laughs> Lori spoke to a little bit from Neil Young of the National Institutes of Health, said publishing is the expression of our work, a good idea, a conversation or correspondence. Even the most brilliant person in the world doesn't count for anything unless you have it published, which is really interesting looking at the fact that, you know, each article has to be a unique contribution 
you can't substitute one for the other. So just because, you know, your library has access to this article from 2021 by this author, that doesn't mean anything if you don't have access to the article from 2022 that is informed by that article and then has the newest contribution and so on and so forth. And one thing that the article highlighted in this part of the conversation is if you control access to scientific literature, as academic publishers do, you basically control science because you're controlling those conversations and who's contributing to those conversations and what those contributions look like. Right. Well, and there's, you know, and that about the library, I mean, the, I think this is becoming the, a, a, a trend. I don't think it's just K-State um, to like not buy those journal subscriptions because they've just become so expensive and then to rely on interlibrary loan. I, I know that's that's a big deal. And so that you would think that that would almost force a change at some point in the in the publishers, I do know like the the hard sciences, the so-called hard sciences, uh, you know, natural sciences and physical sciences are uh, are more like they have more resources uh, uh, because they are more highly valued by universities because they bring in more of those grants. Ooh, capitalism. Ooh. Yeah, right, right. Like my my discipline, you know, we get some government grants, but not nearly at the level of, say, like the physics department or the chemistry department, you know, these kinds of things. Um, the other side of the coin is that when it comes to research at universities, capitalism plays a big role, too, because quite a bit of grant money comes from uh, corporate you know, sources um, or government priorities that are conditioned by corporate sources. So for instance, in the agricultural college, I think probably corporate money competes very tightly with government money as far as the research. And, and in both cases, the corporate like priorities are very important when it comes to agricultural research. And so that's going to constrain your research. You know, what are the priorities of of those two the, that are like providing most of the money, that definitely shapes what research is done. And if you want to research outside of that, good luck finding a job, you know. So in the case of the ag college, that would be, you know, mainly supporting conventional big agriculture, industrial agriculture at this point. If you don't want to do that kind of research, you might not be able to even obtain the money. Typically, professors in that field have to fund themselves as far as their research teams. You know, you might be able to not be able to find the money to even do the research that you want to do. So it, universities in a lot of ways have become the, I guess, the arms of both government and corporate industry, right? We do, we do a lot of research for, for both. And, and we are constrained um, by their priorities. And that's not the way science is supposed to work. You know, I mean, you still hear this sort of fairy tale story that science is about, you know, discovering things where they lie, you know, and, and just exploring the world and, you know, figuring things out. Well, that's not the actual uh, process at, at all. <laughs> uh, so it is just a fairy tale. And, I, you know, I don't know how many 
people feel the way I do. But at this point, I really, I resent that. You know, I didn't get into this uh, line of work to worry about those things. Um, and and the part of the reason why this is happening too, why the influence of that kind of big money is so important is because state legislatures and the federal government um, are less and less inclined to like fund universities. I mean, in Kansas, the legislature has almost defunded public universities while still insisting that it controls them at the same time. Um, and so what, what are you going to do? You're going to have to look for your funding somewhere and there are strings attached to that. So I don't know. It's, it's frustrating. My biggest takeaway is that because, you know, anthropology and social and the humanities disciplines maybe don't receive as much big funding, we're the most free disciplines. <laughs> In a way, it's a double-edged sword, um, having a little bit, perhaps slightly less constraints about what we're supposed to write about or encouraged to write about. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, <laughs> because you don't have, there's, there's no possibility of big funding. On the other hand, we may just be eliminated at some point. You know, that, that's, that's... I think that's the point. It's like, there's this podcast I listened to called uh, Plastic Pills. It's uh, like a philosophy and critical theory podcast. And th this seems related to my head. So hopefully it makes sense to everyone. But um, they made an episode about in like the 60s and 70s, the CIA was investigating like French theorists like Foucault and Derrida and, and people working in these spheres. Basically, the report finalized and said that like there's no concern about the radical nature of these what they're creating what they're writing um because th they're not going to have an effect on society and that's kind of what it sounds like why there's maybe perhaps not as much funding um from corporate or government spheres in the human like humanities and other in political science and disciplines like this because like you said they're focused on what they see as the practical ones that will have effects, like real life effects, and will also generate the most money. So it's kind of like showing their hand that what really counts is money and continuing, like you said, big, big farming practices rather than thoughts and ideas. So it's kind of devaluing of thoughts and science and ideas, as, even as it's sold to us this certain way. Yeah. And isn't it kind of ironic that the the public is kind of encouraged to see the social sciences and humanities as this bastion of wokeness and political correctness that's somehow threatening all of humanity with communism. <laughs> At the Why are you telling them our secrets, Lori? We're recording this. <laughs> You're not doing that. I, I thought that's what we're supposed to be doing. Oh, that's bad. That's that's what we're doing right now. No, I don't. <laughs> but it's just so ironic that on the one hand we're blown up into this huge boogeyman by people who want to totally defund, you know, liberal arts, basically, um, and you know, so that, that like we have some huge impact on society, whereas the reality is more what you said, Cody, we don't have that much of an impact, you know, like it, we are like sequestered and kind of um, stuck in, in a position where we don't have a lot of impact. Um, and, and 
we need to get out of that somehow. But, you know, you, they, they kind of want to have it both ways, you know. And um, I don't know, it's just struck me more and more odd over the past few years, just how we're, uh, when people talk about us at all, we tend to be kind of boogeymen, you know, who are trying to somehow cause revolutionary damage. And I don't know anybody who's even remotely in that zone, you know, in, in my, in my university now. <laughs> you know what they say though, any press is good press. They're talking about us at least. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We're still alive. We're out there. <laughs> One thing though, to like provide a little bit more complexity to this as if it's not already complex and nuanced, but um, even branching outside of like humanities and social sciences and what can be considered soft sciences or whatever. I have a friend who is a statistician and got her PhD in like human development and family science from that like very hardcore statistical study thing that she does because I have no interest in that kind of science. But she was saying that one of the requirements to get her PhD was to be published enough in top journals to like have name recognition, which really disincentivizes scholars from doing replication studies, which are a lot more underrated than they should be because, you know, we just have all these different studies that are like one study in 2012 found that, you know, there were more car accidents the morning after the time change in spring versus the time change in fall or whatever. Any study you read about like health or wellness, there's not funding for scientists to like do replication studies to see the validity or to test other variables or to do anything like that. And I mean, we've kind of been talking about this throughout the whole thing, but then we get more popular media that's like referencing this study that happened in 2012. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's like groundbreaking. But it's like, well, would that actually hold water if someone tried to replicate it or if they tested for a different thing? You know, those kinds of tweaks that are supposed to be part of the scientific method, like we're not actually valuing that part of the scientific method anymore. Yeah, And then people take those studies and run with it and say, well, you know, there's this one study that said if you drink a bottle of water instead of water from a lake, you would live 10 years longer or something. I don't, and it's, you know. Yep, that's a problem. It is. And, you know, we need to have more intersection uh, between academics and the media. Uh, in my field, there's like a couple of things that my colleagues have been publishing in The Conversation, which is this online kind of clearinghouse for academics who want to kind of like summarize their studies uh, or, you know, write something about a contemporary event um, using their research. And that gets picked up in media um, quite a bit. And then The Monkey Cage, which I believe is a Washington Post, could be New York Times. can't remember, but it's like a, it's a one of those top newspapers that publish social scientists on current events. Um, but more of that needs to be done so that the media can use the studies that we, that we do more effectively. We can't expect them to like go 
and read journal articles, I mean, and books, that's just not going to happen. It's You'd have to have like specialized expertise to be able to read and understand quite a bit of those. Um, so, you know, putting more priority on maybe even saying you must like translate your research into something like this so that so that it can be used and and people can be better informed but you're right uh Clayton it's like that's especially it seems like in the health sciences there's just a tendency to like oh one study says that you know smoking cigarettes causes tinnitus it was a study of eight people you know and back 10 years ago and uh <laughs> and especially if these are research studies from like products half the time it's the company that makes the product that's funding the research so i mean you know there's no way to actually yeah validate so half smoking stuff. smoking marlboro uh cigarettes will give you tinnitus but camel then you're good you should smoke camel, camel cigarettes camel will cure you <laughs> yeah will cure your tinnitus <laughs> <laughs> And that's what science says, and you yeah. should believe us. Yeah, and we wonder why people distrust science, right? I mean, this is an element that I like to talk a bit about because we, you know, we we tend to castigate folks that, especially during the COVID thing and everything, because they didn't trust science or with the climate change, you know, like uh, people don't trust the scientists, and and they they should because there's a lot of studies uh on both of those but maybe especially climate change just decades and decades of them at this point so there ought to be some trust but when science so often puts you know is perceived as putting out studies like that that are really kind of flimsy or aren't well understood or if the scientists are basically working for some sort of commercial agenda which happens a lot. Like, remember all the scientists who promoted tobacco use and said it was totally harmless. Prestigious scientists in prestigious universities and research centers. Right before they took a smoke break, you know. And they did, they did. <laughs> uh, yeah, while between testifying for the tobacco industry in the courts, you know. So like, this is partly why we're in the mess we're in as far as like the legitimacy and authority of science. People don't understand what the scientific method is, sure, but also they've come to realize that scientists, kind of like biblical, you know, scholars, it, you know, basically can prove whatever they want to prove out of the material that, that you know, that they're looking at. It, and that's not the way it's supposed to be on either of those scores, in my view. But like, uh, as as a member of the general public from the point of view of the hard sciences, since I'm not in, in those fields, I can't help but kind of feel like, you know, how, how am I supposed to trust you? Where did your funding come from? You know, what, what is the underlying, you know, agenda here? I think we have to ask those questions instead of just assuming that if you're, if the person is a physicist <laughs> or a chemist, or, you know, an engineer, that they're telling you the truth. That's just, that's just a reality of, of life. And, and uh, it hasn't, yeah, it hasn't helped us that so many scientists have decided to kind of like take that money and narrow their research accordingly. I was just going to ask Julia if they wanted to talk about 
archaeology because they are most closest to the hard sciences. We've talked a little bit about like science and archaeology and um, the relation between truth and communication with public audiences. So I didn't I didn't know if you had anything to add in this sphere. Yeah, I do. Um, uh, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about in terms of publishing and books, I think rings true. Obviously, I don't know personally on the the trying to publish my work but on the like side of trying to like buy academic um books and also like going to conferences like going to the SAAs and things like that um I I'm definitely seeing all of this as like like a new academic um but I think it's even more insidious within archaeology because especially within the type of archaeology that I do, which is, you know, Southwestern Four Corners, United States. And I'm studying indigenous prehistory, but all of this like white research is like kept behind all of these like paywalls and institutional like barriers that indigenous people, uh, people in the public can't access because also people in the public don't understand um, indigenous prehistory in general because they're not taught it for a reason and archaeology also is in a weird place because it is sometimes it is a hard science and sometimes it is not a hard science it depends on the archaeologist you are talking to and it is not viewed as a hard science by most of the country and like most lay people most of the public um and kind of the only people that kind of view it as a hard science is the United States government so it's like we're we're experiencing all of the stigmas of social sciences all of the defunding and everything Um, but we're also trying to fit into the scientific method and trying to do all of these hypotheses and testing and everything like that and it's just it's hard and it's not really happening I feel like I don't know about you, Julia, but I watched Ancient Apocalypse and I thought this is the hardest science I have ever seen. Yeah. Well, and- <laughs> this is the hardest of the hard science. I believe, if I remember correctly, they use several numbers and some math. Mm. So I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And mainstream archaeologists had no idea what they were talking about. Well, and like, that's the other thing, too, with like pseudo archaeology is so popular right now. Um, and because archaeologists aren't listened to because we're kind of in that weird social science, but also not space. So we're not listened to because of that. Um, but then also it's like, you're not really encouraged to fight, fight back against it from my understanding by like the academy in general, but because a lot of academics have to have these like Twitters and like social media personalities, like they are compelled and they feel like they have to speak on it and like they should because it's pseudoscience but there's just less it's very difficult to fight back on because people don't have a basis of understanding of archaeology and then also there's the social stigma and then also like it's that's just a lot of work that you're asking people who are already having to do a lot of work to be academics to do you know mm-hmm. yeah we're basically expected to do several jobs which is another thing people just don't understand and as a program director again you know i'm constantly promoting i'm constantly trying to figure out how to get 
that out because we're all like supposed to be entrepreneurs who are, you know, basically, um, you know, more or less reinventing the wheel when it comes to what we offer. Um, and, you know, on any given day, I've got to deal with that, with my own research, with figuring out, you know, how to, what to teach coming up. I mean, and my, I do my own administrative work much, much of the time, you know, I mean, and more so people who don't, don't have some of the funding that I've got, cause I've, I've got a wonderful source of funding for the program. But a lot of us, I mean, there is no administrative assistance. You are filling out all your own forms. You're doing all of this stuff that people used to do when um, universities paid for it. Oh, no, my cat is attacking. You got that cat riled up. <laughs> like you work too hard. <laughs> you don't spend enough time with me. <laughs> she wants to talk into the to the microphone. You have so much to say. <laughs> yeah. I think I've heard a, a few of your YouTube videos with featuring your cats. <laughs> she does that. She comes up and just wants to get right in between me and my computer, unfortunately. But yeah. But sorry. I'm glad we got the guest appearance. <laughs> Your cat sounds like and, an academic publisher or something trying to get in between you and the computer, telling you what to yeah. say, what to write. That stands for reason. <laughs> well, you know what, what Julia was saying a little bit ago about, you know, everything behind a paywall and maybe particularly like Native Americans, you know, not being able to access um, this or, you know, I mean, I don't know how many times people have contacted me from, um, from other parts of the world that, you know, in no way can afford access. And they're asking me, can you just send me your article? And if I can, I do, you know, but I just, I just think that it's really a sad state of affairs that humanity hasn't like figured out how to share this important information, you know, that the information like that, like this should not be behind some onerous paywall. I think this is a great point to kind of shift more towards the library and other shadow libraries as a repository of this kinds of knowledge, because, I mean, that was one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to have this conversation was because how all of these academic resources and, you know, knowledge production and entry into the ivory tower is concentrated in the global north and the more Eurocentric West. Um, the one thing I did want to say is you talking about all of your different roles and having to manage, you know, promoting your work while also writing research and teaching classes and everything else. Like, I mean, I feel like that's the point of capitalism is just to exploit you to your end and make you do as much as possible. And like, that's one of the really insidious parts of this academic publishing structure that we have is because your success relies on you doing all that work so that your like research and contributions can have traction and you can get recognition for the contributions you're giving so it's like really the double-edged sword of that it's like you know the tool of your exploitation is also something that you are relying upon in order to even get to that point to continue to be exploited and the only reason only reason you can make that connection is because the writings of Karl Marx are not behind a paywall. 
At least his original writings. That's true. <laughs> yeah, there's the whole Marxist library out there. So we do have that. <laughs> so now we can throw open the doors of the library and everything that is piracy. All right. Is that an invitation for me to start? Sure. I don't know. I was <laughs> so, just saying something. <laughs> okay. Um, since you shared the TikTok article, like the article that talked about um, TikTok playing a role. So I mean, I can give a go at it and then you can fill in any gaps if that sounds good. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So about November of 2022, so like late October, early November, um, the FBI basically seized the Z Library website, or at least some of its domains, because it's sneaky like that. Um, they seized it all and wouldn't allow anyone access to it. In case you aren't familiar, Z Library was basically this web page where people could go on. It looked pretty legit and just search a book. Most times you could find it and then just click on it and download it. It was very simple and easy. You could also get access to articles and a lot of scholarly works were there as well, which was one of the main appeals. But as for many life hacks that have been spread through like TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, all the other social medias, Z Library was one of big, I wouldn't call it a campaign, but there was just a lot of mention on it on TikTok and other places about how it's such a useful resource for students to download textbooks, different curricula, all this other stuff that are really expensive to buy. Um, and one example of complaints that went to the Office of U.S. Trade Representative is from the Authors Guild. This is kind of emblematic of what at least from the public we can see brought down Z Library or, you know, the attempt to bring down Z Library. Authors Guild basically said like, hey, as authors and writers, you know, we work really hard to produce content and these shadow libraries are really taking away from authors' livelihoods and professional writers who are seeking to make a living out of their work in the publishing industry. Um, so that's kind of an example of an argument that was taken to the U.S. Trade Representative. That was one of the key arguments and complaints that were used in, you know, seizing the Z Library resource. And I guess kind of the point of the Vice article that talked about this was just like, hey, Gen Zers and some millennials are talking about life hacks, but they aren't recognizing that this is pirated and illegal. So maybe they should keep the secret to themselves kind of thing, which I find it really interesting in looking at this whole like Authors Guild thing, because if you're actually worried about authors' ability to make a living on writing professionally, maybe you should do something to change the system that gives people such an awful living or an awful wage based on publishing works. But alas, they did not ask for my advice when they filed that complaint. That's because you work in the humanities, Clayton. I know. That's why they didn't ask your advice. <laughs> Some interesting sentiments that were shared or like one person went to Twitter and put um, Z library getting taken down feels like the burning of the library of Alexandria of our time, which is an interesting statement. Not overblown at all. 
okay, technically the Library of Alexandria didn't really burn down. It was true. neglected and underfunded. So Sounds familiar. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's basically like our current libraries. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I could add here that like, as as Clayton mentioned earlier, technically zero library is not taken down. You can still access it. And it's through this thing called Tor, the Tor browser, which I'm sure hopefully um, some of our listeners have heard for um, about. But if you're not familiar with the Tor um, browser, there's a really great article I found and Hopefully you can access it just by Googling it and, and finding it. Um, but it's called the Tor Browser and Intellectual Freedom in the Digital Age. And it's it was published to the Accidental Technologist. It's by um, uh, Allison Macrina, who is a librarian, privacy activist, and the founder of the Library Freedom Project. Um, and it gives you like basically a step-by-step Induction from a librarian, no less, who's promoting the use of such shadow libraries and and ways of accessing them, of how to um, access at least the Tor browser, and then from there, um, there's a variety of Reddit posts you can find about how to access Z Library and similar um, shadow libraries, and also um, still available. And hopefully, I don't think this podcast will uh, reach enough listeners that we can threaten these other websites to be taken down. But you can still access um, Libgen, which is another similar shadow library to Zlib. And then Sci-Hub is also a big one. And I think a really important part of promoting and talking about these shadow libraries is, first of all, the point we mentioned about how few profits actually go to the writers and authors and academics who are publishing these papers. Um, and these books and how they're being taken advantage of, but also the access dimension that Clayton was talking about and hinting at, um, and, and Laurie as well, about people in different countries, especially not in the global north, who don't have access, or even people who aren't at, currently at a university, who don't have university credentials, don't have access to university libraries. Um, I know during my year off from school when I didn't have access to some of the library materials, it was just like awful. And I'm like, I had to like constantly talk to people and beg them for help to send me stuff. And then um, along with that, I found this really interesting article on, well, I don't remember the name of the website, but I can find it. For those that don't know Z library as I mentioned one of its appeals kind of it's that it looks pretty legal and legit it has a very nice aesthetic to it unlike some more shadow resources that seem pretty seedy as you pull up the page (laughs) and you're like I don't know if downloading a book is safe but Z library kind of worked around that and um, one thing that I was reading characterized it pretty well as like kind of how Netflix and Spotify and those kinds of companies slash websites have kind of reinvented, you know, like those respective industries, like the music industry and the movie industry, you know, Z library can look like that in some ways in the sense that you just get on and you have access to all these resources and you don't have to go to a store and buy it, or you don't have to, you know, buy just one of them. But the main difference is the legality in the sense that you have to pay a monthly fee to 
have Netflix and Spotify in order to use those resources, but there's no fee for Z library. So in those ways, it kind of works around the fact that it's a shadow library. And it's really interesting because other shadow libraries that Cody mentioned, like SciHub and LibGen, those are pretty explicit from the get-go of their mission and goals. So like SciHub pretty explicitly states from the opening that one of its goals is to remove all barriers in the way of science and becoming the first website in the world to provide mass and public access to research papers And um, on LibGen, they have like a link to a letter of solidarity, which kind of speaks to the same things of like having the means and methods to make knowledge accessible to everyone with no economic barrier to access and a lower cost to society. So while those two specifically have more of like a, um, I don't know, power to the people kind of feel to it and do come across and kind of embrace this status of like a shadow library. Z library didn't really do that and positioned itself as looking more legit and not explicitly stating those kinds of things. And it's safe to say some people use Z library and probably didn't really understand how illegal it was. You know, I mean, on this topic, I, I guess I would make a distinction, I don't know, like an ethical distinction or moral distinction maybe between like things that are produced through public institutions and pieces that are produced by private individuals who actually are trying to make a living. I mean, I do think that um, research that's done by people like me who are in, you know, being paid by public funds to do it, um, ought to be accessible at least to the people who are paying them, uh, if that were the case. <laughs> uh, you know, they should be publicly accessible because we're public um, employees, so to speak. And I've never really bought into any other system. So uh, while what they're doing is, I guess it sounds like illegal all around, it doesn't sound morally um, objectionable to me, uh, except for when you get into the area of like, you know, for instance, novelists and uh, writers of popular books that are actually trying to make a living. Now, as Clayton suggests, maybe if we didn't live in the, the system that we do where people have to literally try to like scrape it together to survive on their creative works, um, that wouldn't be a problem either, but we do. And so I am a little queasy. It's kind of like, you know, music uh, pirating. Um, musicians have, well, you know, because of the world in which we live, it's so hard to protect through copyright your your music. So a lot of them, I think, have kind of given up on it. So they try to make their money doing concerts and selling merchandise and other things. But, they, but their actual music is kind of out there um, for people to appropriate. Um, and that isn't necessarily good, but yeah, when it comes to academic publishing, why shouldn't it be available? Are we doing something that should be, um, you know, that protected? And, you know, of course we do it all the time. We, we create patents, every state university and public university has 
thousands and thousands of patents for commercial products or things that can be made into commercial products that then, you know, that those funds come back to the university that supposedly helps paying for other things. But should we be doing that? I don't know. Like that also makes, gives me a little bit of queasy feeling. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I found the article or the name of the website. I found this article from, it's called Torrent Freak. And this is where I got um, a lot of, where I did a lot of the research for this, um, for at least the aspect about shadow libraries and everything. For example, the the article title that I was thinking of is called Sci-Hub, only option for academics in Russia after major publishers pull out. So in like Russia, it was they were talking about how um, scientists in Belarus and Russia after the outbreak of the Ukraine war were like the publishers that we mentioned earlier, Elsevier, Wiley, Blackwell, and the other big ones and a bunch of other publishers pulled out of Russia and basically like refused to continue providing their services to Ru Russian state institutions and universities, which were the ones, of course, paying for the access to these um, journal libraries and everything, as well as like, you know, stopping from actually publishing the work of these of these uh, Russian scientists and working within um, after the outbreak of the Ukraine war which of course there's questions about, you know, the reason was about supporting Russia in any way and supporting Russian state institutions. And there's a lot to get into to with that. But what I thought was really compelling about this part is that it directly harmed the Russian scientists from continuing their work. And a lot of them could be working in like peace studies, international conflicts. They could be working in media theory, things like this. A lot of the scientists um, who were taking part in this, they wrote a letter and in the letter they writing against the um, outbreak of the Ukraine war and worried about being censored and all these things. And so there's just these connections to like Russian academics and professionals being able to speak out and sort of report on things from within the country that's kind of also cut off a little bit by not having access to these publishing outlets or to even read about academic research going on outside. So they're forced to use shadow libraries um, like C-Hub or Z-Lib and Sci-Hub and other things like that. So I think there's a lot of um, questions also here with, with what Laurie was raising about the, the funding of public research and how the academic publishers are directly profiting off of public funds, taxes that were used to support universities that are or grants that are then used to create these research, which is put it behind paywalls. So essentially it's um, like slowing down or completely halting the forwarding of science, especially in certain parts of the world, just driven by for-profit motives or um, other political considerations, you could say, I guess. Yeah. Well, and they're, they're getting into that territory of corporate governance, right? Or corporate power as a form of governance when when they can decide who has access to information and decide, you know, to take it away depending upon the political, you know, climate or their particular political goals. That's that's not a thing that, you know, we ought to we ought to want. And yet it, it happens constantly now in so many ways, you know. Yeah. They they are making decisions about who gets heard and who doesn't get heard, who gets information and who doesn't. And it can greatly impede a country's progress. Um, you know, I mean, it, it just 
from a moral standpoint, again, it doesn't seem right. From a legal standpoint, sure, they have the power to do that. They have the right to do those things. But it just just feels wrong. And it's because it has to do with information. And, you know, like the people who started the internet, I read, you know, had this lovely idea that inter, inter, information should be free and that, you know, this would give the internet would give people a chance to have access to all this information and we'd usher in a utopia because people would be able to like not only access it but communicate freely with each other democratically and so on and so forth and that didn't happen i one of the people i've read in the past couple of years is jaron lanier who's written a series of books on um just you know like the the institution of the internet and what happened um you know, to make it, to make it like this. And, uh, you know, he says that this model of providing things for free was actually what got us into this zone because instead of just, you know, asking for just a certain small amount of money, if you wanted to have access to, let's say this library or to, you know, Wikipedia or whatever it is, um, you get it for free, but but with commercials. And then that give gave, you know, a whole nother set of corporate interests, a huge interest in what people listen to, read, you know, participate in, um, and gave them a lot of power. So he thinks that that was, that was a mistake. Now he's talking about things like Facebook and stuff like that, but I think there's something there, right? Um, Facebook was just a mistake in general. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I remember when it, you know, was first a thing. It was it it was just for people in academia and they 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 didn't commercialize it because they couldn't figure out how. And then within like a decade, they'd totally figured out how to make money off of it. And it, I think from that point on, of course, the algorithms got better and pretty soon it's ruining everybody's lives. <laughs> it's the story of our life right now. Bring back MySpace. <laughs> yeah i think That's, it still exists doesn't it I, I think so yeah yeah and and you can every once like see tom from myspace just you know ch tweeting and and talking about it and it's it's always like a very he's strong the only one he's the yeah. only one in myspace <laughs> well he was the one that the creator that started he might be the only one in myspace oh. that, that just <laughs> that'd be that would be interesting See. But yeah, I think one of the huge pieces is recognizing how, you know, shadow libraries like Z Library can kind of give access to materials and resources that are concentrated in the global north and in the west. Because like, as an American, like I never even really thought of it more. But recently, it's like, you know, not everywhere has public libraries in every, you know, neighborhood or town or something and to me I never even thought of that but it's like if you don't have a public library if you aren't in a university where else are you going to get it maybe at school but if you're not in school like an adult who goes to a job during the day and comes home at night yeah. like during my time out of college without you know since I work at a university now I have access but kind of like Cody said without access to the university library it's like a whole existential crisis of like what is knowledge 
how do I learn? <laughs> how can I grow? <laughs> like, how do I participate in this world? Because I don't have money to, you know, spend $30 to buy one random article or $100 to buy a book from this professor that I like to follow and like to stay up to date on their work and stuff. And it's like, you know, our system as we have it, like, I mean, this whole episode, we've been talking about the structure of the academic publishing system. And it's like, you know, how do you expect people from the global South, for example, who don't have access to the same resources to be part of this game of academic publishing if you literally do not have the resources and the access to information to even make that available like i think uh yeah from the ir perspective it's a form of soft power you know control of information and so you know whether it's a you know, well thought out policy of government or not, it functions at that level to like slow down the progress of other people and to, you know, continue the dominance of um, the global north, basically. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I would agree with that. And it just, it feels wrong. We should have like some, you know, uneasy feelings about that at that level because it's just, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm a fan of Plato among other philosophers. Right. And, you know, for sure what comes across in platonic thought is information is universal. You know, it's, it's, it's something that's accessible and should be accessible through reason. And anybody who's capable of receiving it should get it. It shouldn't be treated like a product. It shouldn't be commodified. Yeah. Now I'm thinking I should have researched, but I think it's really interesting though. And, and, cool how a lot of this um sort of like concentration and, and and commodification of knowledge has led to like great ingenuity and creativity um from like everywhere in the world but especially places where knowledge can be hard to access like i mean the creator of sci-hub is from kazakhstan and um there's been so many other like innovations and influences in the broader like sort of free software movement and uh, data sharing within from countries in the global south or um countries that have had harder access to knowledge and, and enforced um access against reaching knowledge and things like this um so it's in one hand there's something to be recognized there of like and and I don't think we've been doing this, but to to challenge maybe a, a little bit of a victimization narrative, because the, although they are victims, they have agency. They've you know been able to do creative things, and and this goes for collaborations with people from the West with other people as well. Uh, to not to dichotomize it either, because it's not a you know us and them kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean like not to go into a like victimizing narrative or anything, but I think this really does flesh out the role of colonialism and racism and white supremacy and all these other like you know very real systemic forces and cultural forces that have been involved in the development of the systems that we have as we know it i mean not i don't have the knowledge to say that it was one person's dream to concentrate access of information in the you know, global north and in the west 
and I, I'm not going to bring out a tinfoil hat and say that it was a concerted effort by some key individuals in this point of history to do that. But like the way that colonialism and racism and like patriarchy and everything else is baked into the foundations of how we go about, you know, innovating and renovating culture and cultural systems and structures. Like in some ways it's kind of an inevitability, which is frustrating to say, but like, you know, if we have such a white supremacist and patriarchal and colonial culture and ideology and economic system and everything else, how does one expect that not to be present in, you know, something like the academic publishing industrial complex? Yeah, that's not fair. Which, if it hasn't been coined, might as well coin it now. <laughs> it's been coined by Clayton Gerard. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, I don't have any closing remarks, so. Um... I have nothing. <laughs> I feel like we've had a very good discussion. I just don't know a witty way to like. <laughs> I will just say that I've really enjoyed talking to you guys. It's been interesting to hear uh, about all this from the students' perspective. Well, yeah, thanks for coming on. Like, it was really nice to have someone that knew their shit and could be like, yes, I've written seven books. I'm working on an eighth, like all this. And, you know, um, and just, of course, it's always nice talking to you as well. Yes. Thank, thank you. you so much for coming. Thank you. Sharing some of your knowledge to us in the broader world. <laughs> for free. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs>